Morning, church. Before we turn to Hosea, uh, chapters 4 and 5. John, good job reading that. Long text, brother. Nice job. Where's John? That was excellent. Um, but uh, before we before we get there, hold the finger in that. I want you to turn to the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to set the stage and let this um, kind of fuel our prayers as we come into our passage and kind of help us get in a, a right frame of mind to to understand what this passage in Hosea is meant to uh, do for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is one of those New Testament passages that help us get a window into how we're meant to read a lot of the Old Testament passages that we that we study. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Are you there? Okay. I'm going to start in verse 6, talking about these spiritual experiences that Israel has had. And then it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, Israel, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for us for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let us let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then I'm going to skip to the end. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, this passage has always been super instructive to me because it, it dips back. It, it gives some very tangible examples from the Old Testament. And it says, these things were written down for your instruction. Right? So, I mean, you could say this about virtually everything in the Old Testament. Like, written for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So this, what is happening in Israel, what's going to be happening in our passage unfolding before us, is written down for our instruction. In a lot of ways, it's just this warning call that's going up saying, do not, this is written for your example, and in this case, don't follow the example of Israel. Go a different direction. Okay? So, in part, this is for us to learn from the bad example of Israel and to chart a different course altogether. Now, I also wanted to bring this out because not only does it instruct us about um, where our hearts can go, you know, with idolatry like Israel did and instruct us to go a different direction, but it also... 
uh, it also helps us on a day like today where we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper after a little while. And did you notice that those references to the Lord's Supper? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Communion, participation, fellowship, sharing. Um, this is speaking about the present enjoyment that we are meant to have with Christ. And we part, we get to enjoy the presence of the living Christ in a special way as we partake of the Lord's Supper. He wants to commune spiritually with his people in that moment. And, and, and here it's saying, do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Well, how would we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Well, by being a people who want to worship idols and try to partake of the Lord's Supper and act like it's all good. In other words, to be hypocritical as we're acting like we want to commune with Christ, but we actually really want to commune with our sin. Okay? So we've talked about this a lot in these past weeks. Like idolatry can take a lot of different forms, right? Idolatry is putting anything equal to or above God. It's this heart preference for things that are not God, right? Putting, elevating things, even good things above God. And so I want this before us from the outset as God works on our hearts through his word preached, that he would be doing things in us and even uh, provoking in us a heart that wants to repent of our idolatry so that by the time we come to the Lord's table, we are just so primed and ready to commune with the only one that can truly satisfy us. Amen? Can we pray for that, that God would do that as the word is unpacked here as we're turning back to Hosea 4? Father, we we thank you for your word and we thank you for your wisdom and and inspiring all these scriptures and all these accounts from the Old Testament and, and making sure that they're preserved for us, written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Lord, I pray that we would heed the instruction of Hosea 4 and 5. I pray that we would see Israel's example and that we would want to run the other direction. Oh God, help us not to think that we are beyond a fall. Some of us are walking strong right now by your grace. Lord, I pray for every last one of us to take heed, lest we fall. Lord, to not think that we are safe here on this side of heaven. We know that life is a minefield, Lord. There's so many temptations, so many desires even in our own hearts that could lead us astray if not careful, if not watchful, if we're not taking heed. And so, Lord, help us to heed the instruction here and to listen to your voice and that your spirit would lead us in such a way that we would endure temptations instead of caving to them. That we would flee from idolatry instead of whoring after idols. Lord, help us, your people this morning. Purify our hearts. Lord, we thank you that we get to come to the Lord's Supper. and We want to do so in a worthy manner, in a way that honors you and says that you are the one that we want to commune with. And we want to do it with integrity. So help us, O oh God, as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Hosea 4 and 5, two full chapters. Um, I've thought about this, and I thought, well, like, first I thought, well, I'll just go verse by verse and work this way and just bring clarity to you. First. And I thought, that's going to be utterly overwhelming and way too much to hold in the mind. And so what I want to do is I want to give us a, a central analogy that's really inherent to the passage that, can I get an amen? Uh, <laughs> um, 
that's inherent to the passage that's going to help us kind of get hooks, that it's going to help us get the essence of the passage as we go through. And even if we can't cover in detail every single verse, it's going to help us get the thrust of the passage in a way that God willing will be inescapable. Okay, so the central analogy I want us to use is this. Think courtroom. Okay, so this is a courtroom analogy. In in a court case that's being played out before our eyes today, you have you have a plaintiff, okay? You have a defendant, or in this case, uh, defendants, plural. There's multiple that are going to be called to the carpet in this text. And as the plaintiff um, uh, addresses the defendants, he's going to lay out charges, okay? So there's going to be evidence laid out um, against these defendants, and then there's going to be a verdict rendered at the end, okay? So if you can think about that, we're going to take the time to just kind of slow down, think about the plaintiff, who he is, get to know the defendants and uh, and the charges being brought against them. Then we're going to consider the verdict. And um, and so let's dive in. The plaintiff in this case is God. Okay? God is the plaintiff in this case. And uh, I want to start in verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The Lord is bringing charges and accusations against the people of Israel. He is, as it were, filing a lawsuit. Okay? And he's going to lay out, he's going to call people out. He's going to lay out ample evidence, make the charges very plain. And then he's going to render a verdict. The interesting thing in this case is that the plaintiff, the one who's been offended and the one that's bringing these charges is also the judge. And we're going to see he's uniquely in a position to be able to do that. Um, but God is the plaintiff in this case. He's the one that has a controversy. And so he's bringing this scathing indictment on the people of Israel. An indictment that we are meant to be instructed by, right? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So the plaintiff, what do we know about the plaintiff? If we continue in verse 4, it says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, they're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. Now, what does this say about the plaintiff? What does this say about God? Well, God is a God who desires and values justice, steadfast love, faithfulness, Step, did I say steadfast love? The knowledge of God. In fact, in a lot of ways you could say God desires the knowledge of himself to just permeate the land. In fact, the prophets, for example, in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9, talks about the knowledge of the Lord or the glory of the Lord covering the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so in a real, very real sense, the, the promised land, the land of Israel, was meant to be this place that was just filled up to overflowing with the knowledge of the Lord. And it was meant to run out to all the nations. It was meant to cover the whole earth. God wants the knowledge of himself to spread, to permeate over everything else. But the knowledge of God was not in the land. There's no knowledge of God in the land, which explains why there is no faithfulness or steadfast love, right? And it also explains why the negative is there. Why there's, interestingly, you could just go down and catalog 
uh, the second part of the Ten Commandments, swearing, okay, commandment number nine, lying, commandment number nine, murder, number six, stealing, number eight, committing adultery, uh, seven and ten. You can, I mean, just breaking the Ten Commandments. They're, the knowledge of God is not in the land right now. And God is a God who cares about steadfast love and justice and righteousness and faithfulness. He cares about these things. And so God is deeply offended by it, and in large part because he's made a covenant with these people. And they have agreed to see to it that the land is filled with his knowledge, right? And that the, these positive qualities, faithfulness and steadfast love, that these are the things that characterize them as a people, right? But none of these things are happening in the land. In fact, the exact opposite is happening in the land. But to see that this is a God, this plaintiff values these things so much. Another thing we need to know about the plaintiff is that he has a perfect knowledge of what's going on. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 3. It says, I know Ephraim. Now, really quick on this, that word Ephraim, uh, it really helps to know what I'm about to tell you when it comes to reading the prophets. Ephraim is often a stand-in for Israel. Okay, Ephraim's uh, starting back in uh, 4.17. Shows up there, it's going to show up 37 times in, in the rest of Hosea. And you're just going to see this interplay between Israel, Ephraim, Israel, Ephraim. And so when you hear Ephraim, generally speaking, it's speaking about Israel. And the reason to do that, Ephraim is the largest tribe in Israel. And so it uh, it kind of stands as a, kind of a stand-in for for Israel as a whole. And so there's that interplay happening here. But it says this. This is about God's knowledge of everything. So it says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. So in other words, God has this thorough, pervasive, perfect knowledge of the sinful situation that is happening in Israel. All of their deeds, their desires, their thoughts, he is perfect. He knows all of it. And this is why I said this doesn't usually happen in the court of the law where the plaintiff is also the judge, right? We would say, well, that's kind of a conflict there. We keep those two things separate. Well, in this case, because God has a perfect knowledge and he can perfectly lay out these accusations and, and weigh evidence, he is both going to serve as plaintiff and judge. But he is the one we're meant to see here. God is the victim here. God is the one who has been deeply wrong and defended. Israel has been unfaithful to him and he knows all about it. So we get to know the plaintiff a little bit. What about the defendants? Okay, I said defendants, not defendant, because there's four. In one sense, you can say, well, it's Israel as a whole. But in this passage, in these two chapters, God sees to it to break it down. And in one sense, I think you could summarize it in four parts, this section on, on defendants. One, you could say uh, the prophets, the priests, the kings or rulers, and then the people as a whole. Okay, And the two that get the most press are the priests and the people as a whole. All right, So we're going to give the most attention to them, but I want to introduce us to each one of these defendants. These are the ones that have done the wrongs. These are the ones that have the charges against them. So who are they and what are the charges leveled against them by God? So start with the prophets. Not a lot said about them, but uh, this is where they show up in verse 4. Let no one contend 
and let no one accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall stumble with you by night and I will destroy your mother. And that mother is not like your mama, but like it's talking about the nation as a whole. Okay? It's just figuratively described the whole nation as a whole. Um, but it's, but notice the prophets and the priests are coupled together. And if you're a, if you're a prophet and you fit the bill here, uh, this is not good as you're going to see to be coupled with the priests right now because the priests are going to get blasted, um, for like, you know, half of these two chapters in some ways. Um, so they're lumped in with the priests you can see there. You'll stumble by day. Um, the priest will stumble by day. The prophet shall stumble by night. In other words, their judgment is getting folded in with the judgment of uh, that's coming to the priests. Now, when we talk about prophets here, are all prophets bad? No. In this context, what are we most likely dealing with? False prophets, right? So these are not true prophets. This is not like a Hosea, Jeremiah, you know, um, Ezekiel. This, These are false prophets. Prophets were those who were meant to be covenant enforcers. Those who were meant to enforce the law of God, they were meant to strengthen the covenant, not weaken the covenant between God and his people. They were, as it were, in a good way, meant to stand with their back to God, facing the people, speaking on behalf of God to the people of God, but they have failed miserably in their role at this time. And so God is going to bring judgment upon them. So that's the prophets. Um, what about the priests? What about the priests? Verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, this theme of the knowledge of God shows up several times in these two chapters. It just seems like it's very, very important to God that the knowledge of him is made plain. Made plain. The knowledge of him is clear. The knowledge of him is appreciated. The knowledge of him is taken to heart. And there's leaders within Israel that are meant to see to it that the knowledge of God is clear and plain and taken to heart. The very thing that the prophets failed to do, the very thing that the priests failed to do. They were called to represent the people well on behalf of God, and they're busy doing their own thing. They're not fulfilling their role either. And so you might ask the question, okay, the people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Why do they lack knowledge? Why is there no knowledge of God in the land? Why is the land that used to, in Genesis 1, clap and dance and sing for joy in this perfect harmony, like why is the land now mourning? Yeah, they're not doing their job, right? Listen to that in verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you, priests, have rejected knowledge. The priests have rejected knowledge. Therefore, that knowledge is not getting to the people, and the people are acting in ignorance, and therefore, they're being destroyed. They're under God's judgment, and God is starting out, as it were, pointing a finger right at the leaders, right at the priests, right at the prophets, saying, you are the ones blocking this knowledge that people desperately need. No small thing that they are being charged with here. Then we continue in verse 7. The more they, the priests, increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. 
Now, usually you think, right, the more priests, the more ministry that can happen among the people, right? The more good that can be done. Well, here God's saying, no, the more priests there are, the more harm that is done. Do you see the tragedy of what's happening here? The more harm is being done. Like, it'd be better if there's only two of you. The nation would be better off. This is a very strong, scathing indictment. In fact, you know, I'm dipping into the part of the judgment a little bit. It's not more ultimate, but it's, it's still significant. I, I will change their glory into shame. Earlier it said, well, you've rejected knowledge in verse 6. I reject you from being a priest over me. You've been given this glorious position for the good of my people. And you've so abused it and so deluded it that it has actually done great harm to my people and now I'm stripping you of that glory. Taking your job away. You don't deserve to be a priest before me anymore. So this gives a flavor of how God is speaking to the priest. But there's one more set of leaders within Israel that needs to be addressed. They don't get as much press as the priests, but it's important to mention mention them nevertheless. Chapter 4, verse 18. I'll start in verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their, when their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. Their rulers, kings, those that are governing maybe smaller provinces within the land. The people that are meant to be like arbiters of justice and trying to promote peace in, you know, God's will and rule in Israel have abdicated their responsibilities. In fact, they're sowing all the wrong things. They're they're sowing injustice in the land. They, it says, dearly love shame. What a strange thing to say, huh? They dearly love shame. What that makes me think of is Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. In other words, the leaders, the rulers themselves, have given themselves over to idolatry. And the very thing that they should be ashamed about is the very thing they're taking the most pleasure in. Israel, behold your leaders. Prophet, priest, king. How are they doing? Isn't this something? God is just calling out all the leaders within Israel. And I can't help but reading this and I can't help but making these kind of applications through it that, yeah, prophet, priest, king. In the New Testament, it unpacks so clearly that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus is the ultimate king. So in other words, what Israel is lacking so much is the very thing that we have gained in Jesus Christ. As it goes with the leaders, so it goes with the people. As it goes with those who follow Jesus Christ, as it goes with Jesus Christ, so it goes with the people who follow Jesus Christ. We are in good hands following our leader, but Israel is in a world of hurt right here. And God is calling out their leaders. And notice, he does not hold back at all when he's talking to the leaders here. And it makes me think, you know, of James chapter 3 when it says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, right? Greater strictness. God always withheld his greatest, most, you know, harsh comments 
most scathing rebukes to religious leaders. Right? Who did he speak harshest to? Was it the prostitute in the New Testament? No, it was the Pharisees, right? He saved, he spoke the most scathing indictments to those who, to whom much had been given. Much was expected of them. So he saved it for the religious leaders of the day. And in one sense, you know, we just see him carrying out the same, same indictments that were there in the Old Testament because some things had not, had not changed. But to point out here, just by way of application briefly, how important is leadership? How important is a godly use of authority? Because there's authority, right? Authority is a given. God, there's God ordained authority. Authority of godly leaders has a way of bringing flourishing to the people under their care. People get, get nourished. Like they're, you know, it's like a well watered garden, you know? That's what happens under godly leadership. It is a God-given thing that's meant to be stewarded very well. But under ungodly leadership, it's destructive. I think at very least, this text should motivate us to pray for leaders because we understand how important leaders are in the life of God's people. And this could have a broader application on a societal level. It can have an application to the church level. It could also have an application to the home, where men are meant to lead in the homes. And we're going to see here, as God, this indictment trickles down now to the people, we're going to actually see just, you know, what the prophets, the priests, and the rulers were to the nation, so to the man was to his home. As it goes with the man, so also it usually goes with the household. As it is with the leader, so it also goes with the people. So we're going to see that connection here, but leadership is all important. So he starts with those in authority, and then let's move to the people as a whole. What does God have to say about the people as a whole? Well, by and large, he's saying, look, because of the rampant sinfulness of my people, the land mourns. The land is meant to be singing. But instead, it's, I love this, I mean, it's, it's tragic, but it's, it's powerful. Like, this poetic language, the land mourns. It weeps. It wasn't meant to contain so much sinfulness here. This is meant to be a place, a land flowing with milk and honey and blessing and enjoyment of God's presence, right? But instead, there's rapid idolatry and God's presence is minimized and therefore enjoying His presence is something that has become almost foreign to the people. As foreign to the people of Israel as God, Yahweh is to the nations. The knowledge of God is not in the land. They were going almost anywhere, virtually anywhere, but to God for guidance. Look with me at verse 12, for example. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. This is a people, like they'll go anywhere but to God for guidance. Like they'll go do a dumb piece of wood that has no breath, cannot speak, cannot hear, but they'll talk, to, give me some guidance now. This is kind of 
a mocking sarcasm that God is using here. Like, they'll talk to a piece of wood instead of talking to me. But it really shows. There might be a good way to, like, are you going to God for guidance? Or are you running everywhere else? Like, would you rather go to a piece of wood, in, an es- in essence? Or would you rather go to the living God to hear his voice? Would you rather go to his word that explains the knowledge of him and his will? How important is the word of God to you? How much attention do you give this book? That will tell you whether you're listening to a stick or whether you're listening to the living God. And if the shoe fits, listen to that word. Hear that indictment. Let it cut us to the heart because this is one of the things, the charges God is bringing against the people of Israel. They're also guilty of this intermarriage in Israel at the time. They were not to blend with the other nations And so, where does it show up? I had it written down, chapter 5, I think it's verse 7. Yes, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. And their judgment is coming because they are intermingling with the nations. Now, that's not, now, so, so for Israel, that was a huge issue. Because what would happen with these intermarriages? What would come with these marriages? Idolatry, right? Yeah, they're going to start adopting the worship practices of the surrounding nations, right? It's kind of the same way. It's like that's why we're we're called to marry in the Lord as Christians. Because you marry an unbeliever, a whole set of values is there. And God would spare his people that and his name, the witness that his church is meant to bear. So it's 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 weighty there, but Israel just totally discounting that. Who cares? She's beautiful. Let's, you know, there's, there's, the thought is, what do I want? Where are my desires going to go? That's what's ultimate. And that's what's rampant in our culture right now. If it feels good to me, it must be right. That's not how the people of God are to act, but that's how people act when there's no knowledge of God in the land or where God's word is not honored. Another charge that God brings against Israel is also tragic in chapter 5 verse 13 they're always going to the wrong physician look at chapter 5 verse 13 when Ephraim remember Israel saw his sickness and Judah his wound then Ephraim went to I should say God right no went to Assyria and sent to the great king in other words there's some kind of problem happening where do we run for help? Where did Israel run for help? Israel's, uh, Assyria's powerful. So they're going to Assyria like they were, they have a wound and they need a physician to help cure it. You know? And so they're going to, they're going to Assyria and the point here is that that's the wrong physician. And my mind can't help but run to the New Testament where we're introduced to the great physician the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going about healing all these diseases. And everybody knows they can come to him because he's the one that can heal, right? Think about that story of the bleeding woman who's just desperate. She has gone to all, she's emptied her bank account trying to pay for all these different physicians to get this incurable wound cured. And then she grabs on in desperation to the hem of Jesus' garment and his power flows into her and she's healed instantly. Instantly. We run to so many different things. 
Let's take this to heart. Just like we can inquire of a stick instead of going to God. That cannot, sometimes just not our knee-jerk reaction. We're going to go to all these different things. I'm just going to listen to 10 more podcasts. I'm going to listen to 15 more hours of Fox News. Then maybe that will do it. And notice here, there is, I think, an application here. They run to Assyria. Go to a king. How many of us have way too much of our hopes wrapped up in the upcoming election? What should we have our hope in? Yeah, where are we going for guidance? Yeah. Are you going to be okay after the election? We should be just fine after the election because our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We're going to be just fine. Okay? But let's keep our focus here and let's not run to Assyria. Let's not run to a presidential candidate. Let's not run to anything else in our lives ultimately than Christ himself, our good physician. He's the one that can cure these wounds, especially the ones that are talked about here. So, what else, what other charges are laid out? I cannot exhaust all of these charges, okay? I'm just giving us a little sampling. So if you think this is taking a long time, you need to know what I'm cutting out, okay? So, um, Let's talk about Israel's stubbornness. Chapter 4, verse 16. Some of you are like, oh no, let's not talk about stubbornness. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Answer, no. They're stubborn. They won't go where the Lord is leading them. Right? Like a horse or a mule that has to be fit with bit and bridle and dragged around, you know. You just can't get Israel to go where they want to go. They don't want to follow the Lord. There's a deep stubbornness of soul. And it's fitting to say a stubbornness of soul because if you look at, I'm going to couple two verses. Second part of verse 12 in chapter 4. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. The strong charges. Chapter 5, verse 4, and I drew this out quite a bit last week, so I'm not going to belabor it, but their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Look at that inability. Their deeds do not permit them to like They're so depraved, they cannot, if they wanted to. They don't want to. They'd rather talk to sticks. But um, And they're, they're, they're fed with raisin cakes. Last week, you have to remember the, the analogy there. But, For the spirit of whoredom is within them. They know not the Lord. See that knowledge of the Lord theme again? They know not the Lord. Ultimately, that's something that has to be written on the heart. It can't just be external. It has to be inside of us. And so we talked at length last week of one of the greatest blessings of the new covenant is God puts his spirit inside of his people and causes us to walk in a statue. He makes a covenant with us to not turn away from doing good to us And he puts his spirit within us so that we would not want to turn away from him, ultimately. We might have our little strengths, but there'll be a deepest part of us that will keep coming back to him over and over and over again. The very thing that Israel needs so bad right now because the spirit of whoredom is within them. And the evidence is all over the place. Now, I'll point out... uh, One more. Chapter 5, verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah. Sound the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, 
O Benjamin. So all these are in a similar location geographically. And there's this really tragic story that's kind of being brought up when we hear these geographical locations mentioned here. This crazy incident that happened in um is in uh in Benjamin and uh the Benjaminites were guilty of it. There was a woman who was raped until she died, and then to make a point of how wicked these people were, she was cut up into pieces. Pieces said throughout Israel to make a point, and the rallying cry was all all of Israel was we have to do something about the Benjaminites because they have broken faith with God. And so with one voice, as it were, all of Israel came up and called Benjamin to repentance for what they did. That's stunning. Well, the opposite is happening here. We follow Benjamin. They're sounding the opposite alarm. Do you see that? They're not siding with God against sin. They're siding with their sin against God. There's this tragic reversal that has happened here. And so we could go on and on and on in describing the sin of Israel here and the charges laid out against them. But what we need to see, top to bottom, inside out, from leaders to the people, and everywhere in between, there's thorough depravity in Israel. The chart, the case is airtight. The evidence is in. Look at verse 13, the second part of verse 13. It says, therefore, the daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with called prostitutes. So if you want a good couple summary verses of where the people are at, there you go. The daughters, the wives, the men. And notice how it grounds it there. The men themselves. What would happen if the men were doing what the men should be doing? I would venture to say this would be a very different picture in Israel right now. I would say the same thing for Christian households. If the men are doing what they should be doing before the Lord, things will look very different. Men, this is such a call to rise up. This is such a call to lead your families to God. To make sure that your home is permeated with the Word of God. The knowledge of the Lord. That it would start there and that it would overflow from your household. May it be so, O men of God. Rise up. Do not follow Israel's example. In fact, I'm calling you today from God's Word to follow the opposite example. In fact, I want us to overhear an example. I want you to imagine this courtroom scene that we're beholding right now. Right? You got God as the plaintiff. You have Israel and a list of defendants underneath that. Um, and then you have some visitors in the courtroom that are related to the defendants. And God is going to give a word to them. Basically to the younger brother saying, don't follow in your big brother's steps. God's going to speak to Judah. Now, he's generally speaking, Hosea is speaking to the northern, um, the northern kingdom of Israel, right? not the southern kingdom, Judah. But you can tell that Judah's also on the prophet's mind because he'll speak about them time to time, primarily speaking to Israel, but Judah's meant to be an overhearing this, okay? 
Because if something doesn't change for them, they're going to follow suit with Israel. God knows this. God is speaking this. And he, they get a little word in this court scene saying, all right, Israel, I've said plenty, okay? Judah, listen to me. Younger brother, listen to me. This is so in line with what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is written down for our instruction as an example of what not to do, okay? So look with me really quick at uh, chapter 4, verse 15 and following. As we're closing this section here on the defendants. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Haven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Okay, Judah, leave him alone. You see that? Distance yourself from him. Do not follow Israel's lead. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The spirit of whoredom is carrying them along. They're swept up in its impulses. You see where their desires are carrying them? You see where their actions are headed? Do not follow them. In church, I think that we are getting the same invitation uh, for instruction here that Judah's getting in Hosea's day. Don't follow this example. Chart a different course. So, what have we seen so far? God's the plaintiff, and he sees all of this perfectly clearly. And top to bottom in Israel, everybody is in sin. In fact, it's so clear now. It's so clear. The sin is laid plain before everybody. Israel, they can't, they can't raise an argument. And God's saying, you, no one in Israel can point the finger right now at anybody else. Says that in chapter four, basically. Waiting for one of them to start pointing fingers. He says, yet let no one contend and let no one excuse. And then he just launches in to all these indictments. Like we, no one can point a finger. And even Israel's own conscience can bear witness to this reality. I mean, it stares them in the face, all this evidence of where, where she's at. For example, chapter 5, verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in their guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Sadly, Judah would not, historically speaking, would not heed this warning. 150 years later, after Israel gets exiled to Assyria, Judah is going to be exiled to Babylon. They did not heed the warning, and we're meant to lean and go like, but God, help me to heed the warning. As your new covenant people, with your spirit inside me, help me to heed this warning. So, the evidence is in. The case has been made. The lawsuit has been filed. The indictment has been brought to bear on God's people. Now, what's the verdict? Is this a hard case? You tell me. Be the judge for a moment. Is this a hard case? I hope not. Uh, but no, it's not. God says, I'm going to punish them for their ways. He's saying, and this is, so, I mean, boy, talk about, you know, you, you maybe watch on TV sometimes like a court case or something. 
and you hear the judge just say something that's like, they could just make the point in general, but instead they make it really personal. It's almost insulting to the person on trial. Well, it's like, the judge renders you incapable of doing anything different than you're doing now. Like, this is who you are. Like, their deeds do not permit them to return to God. Like, left to themselves, they cannot return. And that's going to be really important in a minute. They cannot return. Returning is going to be their only hope. But they can't in themselves. The one thing that they can get them off the hook right now, they can't do in themselves. They're incapable of returning to God. They're going to be punished for their ways. The spirit of whoredom is in them. They do not know God. Chapter 5, verse 4. They know not the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 6. God has withdrawn from them. And chapter 5, verse 10, I'll highlight and slow down on for a second. The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. I mentioned earlier that God's will is that his word would permeate the land, right? Like waters covering the sea, right? The knowledge of the Lord is meant to spread out. But instead, what's being poured out here? God's wrath is being poured out like water. It's covering everything. The judgment is in. The wrath of God is being poured out. God is administering strict judgment here. The verdict is declared pretty powerfully and vividly in verses 12 and following when it says, But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. They're going to eat away at them. Or, maybe more familiar language, verse 14 of chapter 5. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Israel. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. In other words, you're going into exile. You are, you're headed to Assyria because of this. Final verdict. Guilty. 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 Verse 15. I will return, God says. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. If you're sitting there and you're Israel and you're listening to the verdict being read and you're going, look, my, I know. My heart is thoroughly depraved. I don't seem to have the power to do anything else besides keep sinning and playing the whore. There's a spirit of whoredom within me. Like, the evidence is obvious. My pride stares me in the face. I mean, this is just devastating here in us. And then God is withdrawn from me. Where do I go from here? And then you listen to verse 15 and it says, I'm going to return to my place. I will return to my place until they acknowledge their sin. That word until would mean so much to you. That word until should mean so much to every sinner. Because that word until opens up a door of hope for people. You mean like something else can happen? Like this God, this plaintiff that just laid out these these charges, like the most eloquent lawyer, he seems to know things that most lawyers don't seem to know. Like he seems to see the evidence from every single angle and to where I myself declare myself guilty. <laughs> it's so persuasive. And then he sees it so perfectly 
with such infinitely infinite clarity and knowledge that there I sit, completely guilty. And I know how much he values steadfast love and justice and faithfulness and all these things. And so I'm going, well, I'm in deep trouble because I didn't hold upholding those things. The knowledge of God has been far from my heart. I'm in this place of utter depravity, but it said until. And in one sense, it's like God is not going to, he is not going to change any of the evidence. We did hear that so clearly. All right, this is an overwhelming passage of scripture, isn't it? These two chapters, it's heavy. And I need to tell you, God is exacting on his justice. He is not going to sweep a single thing under the rug. Like it's way worse than we even in our most humble state understand. And he will not let one thing go. Because his justice demands that kind of exactness. His perfection demands that kind of exactness. And because of the value of who he is, an eternal punishment fits the crime. This is weighty. This is so weighty to think about. And as I consider this passage and I consider that word until, what wells up in my heart is going, wow. So we're picturing this courtroom scene that we're meant to picture in this passage. Go, okay, the judgment, the verdict is in. We have to agree with it. Is this true? And he's not going to erase any of the evidence, which means the case is closed. Unless that same God would be willing to return to the bench and change the verdict itself. He will not change the evidence. But could he change the verdict and still be just? I will return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. The answer, the gospel answer to that question is yes. God has made a way not to change the evidence, but to change the verdict. The way it works is really simple, but eternally profound. And we're going to spend eternity singing about it. I hope every one of you will spend eternity singing about it. Because the reality is, if you do not return to the Lord in repentance, that is turning away from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, that exacting judgment will be what is administered on that day. Every bit of evidence from God's infinite knowledge will be brought to bear and held against you on that last day. And you will be sentenced to an eternity apart from God. But, it says here, if you return, if you acknowledge your guilt and seek God's face, that is, if you will turn from your sin and idolatry and trust in Jesus Christ, not go to any other physician, but go to this one, you will be forgiven all your sins. The verdict, I mean, this is stunning. The verdict can change. through, And that's what we're celebrating. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the verdict has changed for us. That's why when we read about in the New Testament, it says, you've been justified by faith. We're meant, our jaws are meant to hit the floor. I'm going, really? With that amount of evidence against us, the verdict can change? Like, that exacting judge 
would come back to the bench, as it were, again, and render a different verdict for me, and say, and look at me in the eyes, and instead of lecturing me, like, look at me with loving eyes and say, your, the evidence is all in. Punishment has been executed. Justice has been served by my son. And since you've trusted in him, your case is closed. Not guilty. You walk out of that courtroom free. Don't, if you don't know him and if you haven't taken seriously his evidence, do not take lightly how serious and how strict God's justice is. But if you do know him, do not take lightly how vast his mercy is. He changed the verdict for us. That's what we're celebrating today. And as we go to the Lord's Supper, that's what we need to think about. Jesus Christ, his blood shed for us so that the punishment could be fully absorbed in his body so that all the evidence would be taken into account, so that God's justice would be upheld, and so that we could experience mercy. Faith in Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything for our now and our eternity. We are celebrating that as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And what we're also acknowledging when we come to Lord's Supper, that there's, that there's no one in the universe we want to be close to more than Jesus Christ. In the Lord's Supper, in a very special way, God wants to sustain and nourish the faith of his people. And so, as we close here, and I pray, I want you to realize that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're meant to, in a very strong, conviction-filled sense, come to the Lord's Supper with a sense of, I cannot partake of the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord at the same time. I cannot partake. I cannot indulge in my idolatry. And then think I can just walk up to the table nonchalantly. Like, this is a, this is a weighty moment and it is a glorious moment of celebration. The only way for both of those teams, two things to hang together is if we take our sin seriously, like God does, and also to take his grace super seriously. And what would it look like to take sin and grace super seriously? It would make us want to shun our idolatry and look afresh upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's any way God has been pricking your heart today about your own sin, your own idolatry, where you're seeking guidance, where you're seeking to find healing, like whatever it is, if the shoe has fit in any of these areas, I encourage you, go to the Lord now. Let's come to the table as a people with integrity. If there's anything that you're holding against a brother or sister, and I've said this many times before, we need to, we need to work those things out before we even come here. Because this is a moment, a holy moment in the life of a local church. And, uh, I want to partake of it with as much fullness as possible, recognizing also, with all my heart, that we're looking forward to the greatest feast ahead. Remember what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. We're looking back on Jesus Christ and his finished work work that that allowed for us to hear a different verdict. And we are enjoying him in the presence, in in the present moment. He is, by his spirit, seeking to nourish the faith of his people 
in these in this wilderness wandering till we get to the promised land. And we are enthusiastically looking forward to that day, that day ahead, when we don't have to have any more warnings. Our hearts are not going to be prone to wander. As I said last week, like we're not going to have to look forward to any more tough love. It won't even be a thing in heaven. It'll only be God's tender love lavished upon us where he loves us freely for all eternity. Let's pray before we go to the supper. Lord, with our whole hearts, now we we worship you as a God of justice and as a God of mercy. Thank you for the picture of this courtroom scene. Lord, that we can see something of the depth of sin in Israel and sin in our own hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help anybody here that has not come to a saving knowledge of your son to realize the weight. I pray that the weight of their sin would weigh heavy on their consciences and that they would have no rest until they find rest in you. Lord, if they're exhausting themselves trying to find cures elsewhere, I pray that you'd cause them to run to the good physician. Lord, I pray that they would depend upon you and that they would come to experience the satisfaction of hearing by faith that verdict, not guilty. Lord, as we celebrate your supper, we recognize, Lord, that by all the evidence, we shouldn't even be at this table. But you have been so merciful to us, Lord. You have forgiven all of our sin, all of our waywardness, even our idolatry of this past week. Lord, we come to you afresh, wanting not to share the cup with demons or our idols or our false lovers, but to share the cup with you and the rest of your redeemed people. So bless us, Lord, as we partake in faith and as we partake in gratitude, remembering that you return to the bench and remembering our Lord Jesus Christ who absorbed the punishment that we deserved so that we could hear, now and for eternity, not guilty. We praise you, Lord, for this gift. We praise you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. Nourish our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.